Please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, please. Back to our series today. And we arrive at a topic that doesn't really crop up very often in, in the scriptures. And apart from expository preaching, the idea that we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, uh, if we weren't doing that, I don't think anybody would really choose this particular passage. But it's what God has put before us this morning. It's a very strong and a sober, strongly worded passage. And it wouldn't be one that we would naturally choose. But I believe God has got good words for us this morning. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a shift in the letter. So if you've been tracking the first four chapters, Paul has been addressing the prideful divisions of the Corinthians. And now chapter five, he switches his attention to the next most urgent need in the church. Now, broadly speaking, this is gonna run from chapter five right through to about chapter 10 or 11. Uh, and he's gonna be addressing, if the first section was divisions, this one would be under the title decadence. And he is going to bring the gospel to bear on the Corinthians' lax attitude towards sin. And he's going to talk to them about their need for holiness in the life of the congregation. And specifically this morning, he's going to address serious sexual immorality in the church and God's grace in church discipline. Now, I recognize that there's many children in the room and there's some that might be watching at home so I'm going to try and do this as U-rated as possible so that it doesn't uh, cause any problems or you don't have difficult questions over lunch. So we're going to attempt that but let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the whole chapter and then we'll dive right in. Okay so here's what God has to say through Paul. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of, the leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, since then you'd have to go out from this world. But now 
I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. We need some help here. Father, we thank you for your word and it is true and it is good. And we pray now that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to understand it. And that it would serve us all as we think about the priority of holiness within your church for the sake of the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, discipline is certainly a word, isn't it, that draws out different reactions from all of us. Sometimes there's the positive reaction. We, we salute the diligent and the disciplined, hardworking people of our world. So we, we salute the, the disciplined student who works really hard to get the best grades that they can accomplish. Or we honour the athlete who trains and puts in the hours of dedication necessary to reach the top of their sports field. Or we praise dieters who lose their weight and reach their goal. So we're, there could be a positive response to discipline. But we're probably more familiar with the negative response to discipline. This negative idea that uh, the culture rejects and refuses discipline, that we're uncomfortable with someone or something telling us what to do to discipline us from the outside, that we prefer to assert the rights of individuals and to let them live as they please. So both positive and negative experiences and responses to discipline. Now, usually when we talk about church discipline, that only conjures up negative experiences in people's minds. Judgmentalism, vindictiveness, harshness and harm, and it being a process that can be so unloving. And yet, when it's practiced properly, according to the scriptures, those are the very things that biblical church discipline certainly are not. Now, this is a difficult topic, I grant you that, because some of us have perhaps seen it with our ears, uh, with our eyes, or heard it with our ears, or maybe even experienced it practiced badly in the churches that we've been part of. But that doesn't excuse us from God's word this morning. And actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is an expression of God's grace to us, and it's an expression of his love towards his people, because he doesn't want us to make the same mistakes that the Corinthians made. He doesn't want us to be blind to sin, and he doesn't want us to make their mistakes. And so he's, Paul has written this whole chapter, God has given us this whole chapter to help us to see that church discipline is, is not supposed to be harmful, but to be helpful. And it's actually an essential tool in the life of building a healthy, gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting church. So we're going to organize our thoughts under four headings this morning. Uh, so we're going to talk about the need for church discipline, the what of church discipline, the why of church discipline, and the how of church discipline. So four things. We'll begin with the first one, the need of church discipline. I tried to convey it in my reading, but Paul is very indignant here in this chapter. He speaks strongly, he speaks decisively, he speaks authoritatively, and he is trying to get our attention. So what's going on? 
Well, if you read from chapter 1, you'll remember in verse 11 that he says, Chloe has turned up from Corinth and she's brought a report about how the church is doing. And obviously part of the report is that there's sexual immorality going on within the church. And Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2 that there is a man in this church who is having illicit relationships or a relationship with his stepmother. Okay? The language of verses 1 and 2 indicate that it's, it's not a one-night stand, but it's an ongoing, continual liaison between them. And it was obviously widely known, and it was obviously scandalous to the pagan society at large, because in verse 1 he says, this is something that not even pagans are involved in. It was classed as incest under Roman law, and so pagans wouldn't even do it. And yet this church is overlooking it. And it has brought unwanted notoriety to the church. Now you'll notice the chapter that Paul doesn't address the man or the woman engaged in the sin. But his deeper concern is for the whole congregation. Not just the leaders, but everybody who's part of the church. Because their ignorance and their tolerance and their complacency and their permissiveness and their arrogance in not dealing with the sin that's right under their noses is deeply, deeply concerning to him. So he says in verse 2, you're arrogant. Now, that could be that they were going around saying, you know, we're so gracious and loving to everybody, it's anything goes in our church. And they were proud of that. It could be that they thought that their freedom and Christian liberty meant that they weren't bound by the Old Testament law anymore. Places like Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus 18 that talks about this. Perhaps they thought that they were more loving and they were kinder than God. But... I don't think that they were boasting in the sin itself, okay? Because that makes little sense to me. Because why would a church so desperate for applause and approval and the accolades of the world celebrate and boast in a sin that the pagan world finds disgusting? So I don't think they're celebrating the sin. I think when Paul says you're arrogant, I think he's trying to get across to them. How could you have such a hyperinflated superiority complex when it comes to spirituality, but have this kind of sin going on under your nose and do nothing about it? Don't be so arrogant. And he tells them instead that they should mourn. It's the same word used in other New Testament passages when a family member dies. So he's basically saying sin in the church like this is like a death in the family. It needs to be taken seriously. And his point is that blatant, unrepentant sin should grieve us and lead us to action. See, the church is the fellowship of God's blood-bought people. Jesus has laid his life down and he has shed his blood to save sinners like you and me from sin and death and hell and to bring us into new life and to make us new creations and to bring us into his new community, the church that he has attached his name to and he's, if you like, staked his reputation on. We witness to Jesus. And so in light of the gospel, the church is called to look and to live differently from the world around us. And in a healthy church, there should be regular and mutual and gracious, informal discipleship and discipline. That's the, the admonition and the confession of sin as we help one another to walk in Christ-likeness and godliness. That should be happening all of the time. But at certain times, things get out of whack. Members acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but they deny him by their lifestyle. 
And at those times when the health and the purity and the integrity of the church and its witness to Jesus is threatened, church discipline is the biblically prescribed course of action that the church must take to protect Jesus' reputation on the earth by taking measures to ensure all the members are rightly representing him. So don't misunderstand me. It's not if you sin, we will discipline you, all right? Which is a relief to all of us, isn't it? Neither is church discipline driven by a very specific list of sins. Although Paul is gonna define for us some of the kinds of things that might be included. But church discipline really is needed whenever any member of the church sins in, in these ways. It's, and it's got to have all three of these, really. Okay? So it's got to be a, a, a public or outward sin. Something that could be seen with your ears, seen with your ears, seen with your eyes, or heard with your ears. It's got to be outward and public and obvious. It's also got to be serious. If you look down into, uh, into the second half of the chapter in v- around verse 11, he talks about sexual immorality. He talks about greed, idolatry, revelers, uh, revilers, sorry, drunkards and swindlers. That word could be kidnapper, rapist or, pri- or, or pirate. That's what swindler kind of has that kind of meaning. So we're talking about serious things here. In other places, in Ephesians 5, it talks about have nothing to do with those who practice the unfruitful works of darkness. So maybe witchcraft. In Titus 3, it talks about divisiveness. In 2 Timothy 3, it talks about false teachers. And in 2 Thessalonians, it talks about those who walk away from Christ, who are apostate and lawless. So it's got to be outward and public. It's got to be serious. So it's not just like... You know, I don't know, I had a bad attitude when I got out of bed this morning because I stubbed my toe. And we ring up Matt or me or Pete and we say, we've got a church discipline in this morning. All right, it's got to be serious, it's got to be outward. And it's got to be unrepentant. It's got to be unrepentant. The person involved has been talked to and confronted with God's word, but they refuse to let go of their sin. And they continue in it. And that is exactly what is happening here in verses 1 and 2. This man is continuing liaisons with his stepmother. It's outward, it's serious, and it's unrepentant, and it is threatening the name of Jesus. And so there is the need for church discipline. Now, secondly, the what of church discipline. What, what's the action that Paul commands? Well, in verse 2 and in verse 5, he gives us a window. He says to us at the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then at the, end of, uh, at the beginning of verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Okay, so we're to gather as a church. This is verses 3 and 4. In the name of Jesus, under the authority of Jesus, and we're to remove the offender from among the membership and to deliver them over to Satan. Now, that is complicated and controversial, but the main point, I think, is clear enough. Paul is saying, with the full support of him as an apostle and with the full backing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole church, not just the leaders, should expel the offender from fellowship in the church. Now, handing them over to Satan sounds scary and shocking, Okay, but let me just try and help you to understand that. That does not mean condemn the man to death and hell. It means treat him, as as Jesus would say, like a pagan or a tax collector. Someone who no longer belongs to the covenant people of God. 
You see, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God, and all who belong to the kingdom of God are part of the church. And so to be put out of the church, to be handed over to Satan, is just to say, look, in the way that you're living and in the way that you're behaving, you belong to the realm where Satan rules, as Ephesians 2.2 says. That you belong to the kingdom that he temporarily rules and, are, and is prince over. You have to go back out of the church, back. It's, a, it's, it's like Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. You have to put someone out. Now, more specifically, it is not, and I have to stress this, it is not the forbidding of an individual from attending Sunday mornings. Okay, because where else would they hear the gospel and have the opportunity to experience the grace of God? But church discipline is a public statement, if you like, that the church as a whole body can no longer affirm this particular individual's profession of faith in Jesus Christ because their lips and their lifestyle do not match up. And so it's an act of removing the offender from membership and barring them from participation in the Lord's table, in the Lord's Supper. That's a crucial part of it. It's excommunication, perhaps you've heard that word. Oh, are you excommunicating someone? Well, yes, it's because we're excusing them from communion. Excommuning them. And so formal and specific church discipline is the exclusion of a repentant sinner from the fellowship and safety of God's people. It's casting them out from the protection and blessing of God's family. And it's withholding communion and community and care from them. Now, I know that sounds very harsh and very unloving and it can go against all of our ideas about grace. But let me just say this, God is not some tyrant who is ruling with an iron fist, who is just callously casting out everybody who doesn't agree with him. Okay, instead, the scriptures tell us repeatedly, God is a loving father who disciplines the children that he loves, Hebrews 12. And he goes after straying and sinful people to bring them back into his loving arms, even if it means for a time delivering them over to Satan for a, se a season of suffering. And God calls us to trust and obey his word and his ways, even if they sound drastic and even if they don't fit with our inclinations. So think about this this morning as I've talked. What's your inclination this morning when you hear this? And God would say to you, trust me. Trust my word, trust my wisdom, trust my heart. Because I've shown at the cross that I know best and that I will stop at nothing to redeem people from their sins. So that's the what of church discipline and now the why. Point number three, the why. Why should we do this? Well, radical redemption requires radical action. We've seen that at the cross. And church discipline is part of God's redemptive plan. And there's two reasons that Paul gives us for why church discipline should take place in the, in the context of the local church. The first one is this in verses three to five. It's good for the sinner. So here's what he says. For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, church discipline is not punitive. 
It's not to shame someone, it's not vindictive, neither is it to be exercised to take revenge on someone. It's redemptive and it's designed to be restorative. In fact, verse 5, although it says deliver this man over to Satan, it's actually full of hope. Because it says do this for the destruction of his flesh so that he might be saved. So what Paul means is the church, we're to take action against a sinful individual who's in unrepentant, serious, blatant sin because we deeply love them. And because only drastic action will bring them to their senses. We want to see them taste the bitterness of life outside the congregation so that they see their sin clearly. So that they repent and refuse to continue along the path of sin. And they return to God in repentance and are restored to God's people. That's why we do church discipline. Or why we should do church discipline. It's for the good of the sinner. It's to bring them to repentance. It's so that their spirit might be saved in the final day. Now, if you fast forward, we don't have time to go there, but to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you'll see the outcome of what Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 5. The man was disciplined according to what the church, uh, according to what Paul said, the church responded. And it seems that the man repented and was restored. So it was done for the good of the, of the sinner. But it's also done for the good of the church. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. Paul here is addressing the whole church. The Corinthians were a selfish and an individualistic bunch of Christians, much like us probably. And that's going to become clear in chapters 8 through 14 as he continues to deal with their problems. As far as they were concerned, the Christian life was all about their rights, their freedom, their gifts. Don't stand in my way. It's me and Jesus all the way. And yet the New Testament and Paul would say, no. Christianity is about we and Jesus, to coin that cliche. We belong together in the local church. We're fitted together as the body of Jesus Christ. And so our behavior as individuals has an inevitable impact on the whole body. You stub your toe, it affects your whole body. Cut off your finger, it affects your whole body. And so Paul is saying here, in other words, what I do affects you and everybody else, and what you do affects me and everybody else. And so toleration and complacency and ignorance and permissiveness and arrogance in not dealing with blatant, unrepentant sin in our midst will have a detrimental and destructive and disastrous effect on the whole church. To make his point, he goes to um, an everyday illustration. He talks about leaven. We we would probably talk about yeast and baking. So here's the illustration. A little bit of yeast in your bread recipe has a massive difference. It makes a massive difference to what turns out in the bread, in the loaf. A little bit of yeast affects the whole batch of dough. A little bit of yeast has a disproportionate effect on the whole church, on the size and on the texture of the loaf. Likewise, a little bit of sin that we compromise on, that we are tolerant of, will affect the whole church. That's his point here. So church discipline is not only good for the individual, it's also good for the church to prevent the spread of sin through the whole community. And verses 6 through 8 really are rooted in the Old Testament. They're rooted in Exodus 12 and 13, which is the Passover and the escape from Egypt. 
And it's rooted in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So before Passover, for the seven days running up to Passover, all Jewish households would go right through their house, right through their kitchen cupboards, and remove all the leaven that they had in their house. And they would discard it. They would get rid of it. They would bin it. And it was, a, it was an act that they did after Passover to remember all that God had done, that God had rescued them from Egypt, that he had brought about a decisive break from their slavery and bondage and that he had brought them into new life. And so they got rid of the leaven because when they went out from Passover, they ate unleavened bread. And so it was a reminder, God has rescued us. God has saved us. God has brought us into new life through the Passover lamb. He saved us from his wrath and judgment and death. And so Paul says in a similar way, now that Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, get rid of the leaven of sin from the church. And how much greater is our responsibility to put away sin when we consider the lamb that has saved us? Paul says we're to sweep away the leaven of sin and malice and evil by living lives of sincerity and truth. So that's why we do it, for the good of the sinner and for the good of the whole church. And then finally and fourthly, here's how we do it, the how of church discipline. We've already seen in two places, verse 2 and verse 5, that we're to remove the, the individual from fellowship and we're to deliver them over to Satan to treat them as tax collectors and <coughs> sinners. But now in verses 9 to 13, Paul provides more details on how church discipline should work and what it should look like. He begins in verse 9 by correcting a former misunderstanding and a misapplication that, that the Corinthians had had from a former letter that he had written to them that no longer is in our possession. It's been lost to us. And in that letter, he obviously told them that the church was to have nothing to do with sexually immoral people. But the Corinthians had decided that that was everybody out there in the world, in their pagan world. They should have nothing to do with them. But Paul says no in verse 10. He says, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean withdraw from the world, get out of the world, be exclusive and isolated and insular in a sort of Corinthian Christian ghetto. The Bible tells us we live in a fallen world. We rub shoulders with sinners of all stripes every day. And it's our job not to back away from them, but to proclaim Christ to them and to make disciples of them as they respond to the gospel. Paul very clearly in verse 12 says we're not to judge them. That's God's role and responsibility. Our responsibility as Christians is towards one another, towards the insiders, if you like. And in verses 11 to 13, he makes it clear what church discipline is supposed to look like. Do not associate with anyone who bears the name brother or sister if they are guilty of outward, serious, unrepentant sin. So again, don't have anything to do with the Christian who fails because then we would be completely on our own. Wouldn't even be able to look in the mirror. But the language here is of persistent, blatant, unrepentant sin. Habits and lifestyles that have caught an individual in rebellion against God. Paul would say to us, don't confuse unregenerate and unrepentant. It's a good way of remembering it. Don't, re don't confuse unregenerate and unrepentant. God will deal with the unregenerates. We're to deal with the unrepentant Christians. Don't confuse the two. Our actions towards the unregenerate are to preach the gospel and pray for them. 
our actions towards the unrepentant is to not associate or eat with them. And as he says right at the end, purge the evil person from among you, which is a reference in Deuteronomy. So to not associate means this. It means that the Greek word literally means don't mix up together. Don't mix together. That doesn't mean shun them in the street if they walk past you and pretend they're invisible. That means don't mix with them. Don't share meals with them. That's what he goes on to say. Now he's already said, we've already said, that it's barring from the Lord's Supper. But when he says do not eat with them, he's talking about something more. That not mixing together, not associating, not eating together is a withholding of fellowship and friendship and social interactions with someone caught in serious, unrepentant, straying sin. You see, in the ancient Near East, eating together and sharing meals together was a sign of solidarity. It's a sign of unity. It was a sign of friendship. To welcome someone to your house and to your table was a sign of your acceptance to them. It was a welcome. So we sing that song, don't we? You know, uh, Jesus, thank you. You welcome us before you. You welcome us at your table. It's a sign of God's acceptance of us. So to eat and fellowship and have friendship with someone was a sign of acceptance. That's why Jesus got into trouble for the people that he ate with. The Pharisees and the religious leaders said, why are you eating with prostitutes and tax collectors? And so we're called not to eat, not to have fellowship, not to have social interactions and friendship with someone, not as an expression of hatred, but out of true love for them, as a desire to see the offender repent. How can believers welcome and accept and have fellowship and friendship and socialize with professing brothers and sisters who flagrantly live in rebellion to God. Now that might not sound, what would Jesus do? That sounds very unloving, Nath. Man, I, didn't, I thought we were Grace Church. Yeah, no, this is grace. Paul and Jesus would completely disagree with you on the fact that this is unloving. They would say to us, this is the most loving response that people can exercise towards blatant sinners because of the eternal dangers that are at stake. To take a different approach, to try and extend some form of grace or love that you've kind of conjured up in your own minds and extended to this person, to, to continue with them as if nothing could change, to ignore their sin, to pretend that it's not real, to deem it unimportant, to sweep it under the carpet would be to do them a disservice. It would mislead them into thinking about the seriousness of their sin and their predicament before God. Now, the New Testament gives many other additional commands on how to deal with unrepentant sinners in, in various places. But the general tenor, tenure of Scripture is this. One's relationship with an offender should be visibly and markedly different after than before. And any interaction should be characterized by a call to that person to repent. So it sounds unloving, but actually Jesus and Paul would say to us, it is the most loving thing that you can do because it is a powerful sign that they cannot continue to have their cake and eat it. Because what will happen is that they will end up paying for their own sins because the fruit of their life will disprove their profession. Better to hand them over to Satan now for a short while than for them to be in hell 
eternally. So that's the need, the what, the why, and the how of church discipline. Probably not the sermon that you expected or that will leave you going away super encouraged this morning, but needed if we're to be faithful to Christ. Perhaps we need to change our view of church discipline and see it as something that God calls us as his church to participate in as part of his work of redemption. So often we think the work of redemption and the mission that we're called to is just preaching the gospel. But actually part of the mission of redemption that God calls us to is this, church discipline. It is a deeply sensitive issue. It does require understanding and patience and love, but it will also require obedience and courage and confidence in God's word and his ways that he knows best. So let's see it as God's good gift to the church for our good and for the health of the church. And let's see it as God's gift and way of protecting the glory and name of Jesus on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray now that you would help us to heed your word, to understand it, and to keep it in our back pocket and apply it when we need it to. We pray that we would be concerned about one another enough and love one another enough that when needed, we would operate in this way for the good of the sinner and for the good of the whole church and ultimately for the glory of Jesus. And we thank you that even though this may be uncomfortable, it is uncomfortable grace and an expression of your loving kindness towards us. Help us to see it as such and help us to remain faithful to you, we pray in your name. Amen.